Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, with Foreign Exchange, the global litmus paper for the system, Mark Chandler joins us with Bannockburn, the chief market strategist. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. What does strong dollar signal for the equity market and for the fixed income market? Yeah, in some ways, Tom, I think that they both are all reflecting the same kind of thing. And that is, as Lisa was saying, is this incredible divergence between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in the other major industrialized countries and in emerging markets. And I think nobody, no other country has the political will or the wherewithal to use to do what the U.S. is doing fiscally. And the Federal Reserve is more aggressive than other central banks and continue to buy uh, U.S. bonds. Mark Chandler, is divergence tradable? I mean, do you want convergence or divergence to get alpha? Well, I think that in the short run, and we're still in that short run, is divergence is still the theme. And we're going to see this play out. Uh, when we get the final PMI readings uh, from Europe uh, starting later this week. Uh, but the whole host of data, including that Friday's U.S. jobs data, I think that the key thing here that, that uh, so far I haven't heard you or Lisa speak about, and that is that even that bo- the bottom line here is the market is pushing back against Fed ideas that they're not going to raise rates until, 20, until after 2023. After that jobs data before the weekend, the Eurodollar futures, looking at the December 2022 is already pricing at least one hike. And you can see this as well in the Fed funds futures. So I think this is an important thing, the market pushing back against the Fed's more dovish views. And this is what's, I think, helping take the dollar higher. And this whole idea about uh, stronger U.S. growth continue to be revised up, I think, is really the key to the U.S. equity market. Well, do you get on this train, Mark? Do you say that, yes, the Fed's going to have to capitulate to the market's view, or do you say don't fight the Fed and perhaps bet against this uh, stronger dollar trade? Well, I think it's a, bit, a little bit early to bet against the dollar trade, but here's what I think is going to happen. I think that the Fed has given us a, a, a sort of the bar for when they're going to begin tapering. And they say when there's significant progress towards its goals. We had almost a 1 million jobs being created last month. The early call for the April report, which we don't get until early next month, is for another million jobs. So that means by the time the Federal Reserve meets in June, the U.S. economy would have created something on the magnitude of two to two and a half million jobs. I think that could meet the Fed's uh, litmus test. And by that time, we're going to get inflation above 2% as the base effect from last year's deflation drops out of the year-over-year comparisons. Wait, so you're saying that you do think that the Fed will actually have to hike rates uh, before when they say they are going to hike rates for the first time and they're going to start tapering, which raises a question, how disruptive is this for the rest of the world? How much does this create outflows from particularly the developing world? Well, on one hand, you're right that the, that the uh, U.S. bond yield increase is sort of dragging other interest rates higher. On the other hand, the strength of the U.S. economy you're going to see this in the IMF's forecast tomorrow, like the OECD's forecast. They're going to revise up world growth, primarily because of what's happening in the U.S., secondly, what's happening in China. Stronger U.S. growth is going to, is going to help fuel growth in U.S. trading partners like Canada, Mexico, 
as well as countries in East Asia, who the U.S. imports a lot of consumer goods from. So I want to break down that emerging markets, and while rising yields hurts, mm-hmm. the, and a stronger dollar hurts, the strength of the U.S. economy overrides that in the short term. News breaking right now, widely expected GameStop, and of course this with the Chewy management really driving forward the theme, they're going to offer 3.5 million shares. Uh, the stock moves down 9.1 percentage, which would be what you'd expect with the share announcement, maybe down 3, down 4 uh, percent. Uh, this is an at-the-market equity offering program. And Mark Chandler, I want to fold that in to the great underestimation using foreign exchanges, a litmus paper. Is it corporations adjust. How will corporations, how will American corporations adjust to the superior divergence, the excellence of the American economic experiment? Well, in the short run, I think it's obviously positive. But in the medium to longer term, this divergence is not going to last forever. We're not talking really about about canceling a recovery in Europe or recovery in parts of Asia. We're really talking about postponing, delaying that until maybe the second half. And so I think that this divergence will morph into convergence, but we're maybe three months away from that. Mark, just to wrap everything up, I want to bring uh, some news. Berkshire Hathaway borrowing money in the Japanese bond market for the third year in a row as they say that they're going to be making investments in Japanese companies. Is this smart? Do you see other uh, investment firms doing this, basically levering up at basically free costs based on where borrowing rates are in Japan and then investing in companies there? Well, I think that this isn't really about uh, a currency view as much as it's really about matching your assets and liabilities. So oftentimes, when a corporation is buying a foreign asset, they can, they can acquire that currency by buying the currency, or if they're large enough, like Berkshire Hathaway, they can borrow that currency and thereby not taking, having a currency mismatch. So I think this is really just about running a balanced book and avoiding uh, misalignments between your revenues and your expenditures. Mark Chandler, we have to leave it there. On a Monday morning, Mark Chandler with Perspective from Bannockburn, their chief market strategist. Anahan joins us. She's with Wells Fargo, uh, equity strategist, but that barely describes her mathematics acuity in addressing the stock market. And I want to go to Nerd Alert right now. What is the mathematically or dynamically distinctive feature of this bull market? What's interesting with this bull market is what was leading the market a year ago is not necessarily the momentum trade that's happening right now. And I think that's been a big change. And that's not to say that the market overall can't go higher. But when the leaders start to change, you also start seeing certain styles play out differently, like the value, like the cyclical trade now against growth. Do you sell those fancy stocks from a year ago or do you hold them and just take additional cash into these new stocks? Well, right now, rather than sell them, it's a question of what goes up faster, what goes up higher, where can you get that bang for your buck? And that's that value in cyclical trade you're seeing. But, you know, frankly, the real early cyclical plays have run pretty hot. And, Tom, you know, it's hard for me to sit here and tell you to get into that game now. Um, But, you know, we like the more mid-cycle plays. So that's why we're up on that consumer services industry. Now that the economy is starting to reopen, people have the cash to spend. 
again, it's the things that they can spend on when they can go on that travel they haven't been able to do. Now, as vaccines get rolled out, nearly 40% of U.S. adults are vaccinated. I'm going to be eligible next week. You know, I know I'm ready and excited to travel. So these are the kind of things we're thinking about. And those are the places that we think really are worth playing right now. Anna, good luck. We wish you the best in your vaccination. There's a question about GameStop, which came out this morning and said that it's offering three and a half, up to three and a half million dollars of a million shares, about a billion dollars maximum of shares, a sort of add on equity offering that we've been expecting for a long time, given how much their share prices have run up. Is it too late for a GameStop as retail investors start to bow out of the market? I wouldn't say it's too late. In fact, what it looks like these kind of companies who have seen their valuation surge, whether it's because a retail flow came into it or, you know, perhaps because of their cyclical nature that they were able to run hot, they're taking advantage of that by doing issuance. And this issuance for them is an opportunistic uh, moment. And for us, the way we see it is, okay, do that issuance. And right now it's not so concerning where we think it's going to stress the credit markets. But it does come into question, you know, as you see these opportunities play out, it's because the backdrop is improving. It's because there's risk appetite as the economy improves. All right. Well, the reason why I ask is because Tom was planning to get in on this and he's been really aggressive on GameStop and BitDog, as he calls it, and all the meme uh, aspects of the market these days. There's a question, though, about the retail investor, the marginal buyer. And there have been a number of stories about how there's been a pullback there. How much does that affect the meme stock? How much does this affect some of the momentum names? that have gotten a boost from people who are stuck at home trading stocks. Well, when you say momentum names, what's interesting is you are seeing that the retail flow has the ability to affect the momentum and play a momentum trade. But largely speaking, the momentum trade is really more focused on the institutional funds. Um, you know, we had growth be the momentum trade coming into the year uh, in 2020. And now you look at it, the momentum trade is transforming into this value natured, you know, economically sensitive thing. That's a little different from the momentum trade that retail traders play where it's really just price appreciation and a little more, I would say, uh, short-term looking than you say look on a 12-month or nine-month framework that us institutional players are used to looking at. And I'm looking for catharsis here, and I don't see it. If you're negative on the market, you need some catharsis up to go the other way. Give us the dynamics now of this bull market, whether it's SPX or I'll let you pick whichever index you want to look at. But where's the gamma? Where's the convexity now? Where's that momentum bet that gets people in trouble? Well, when you talk about convexity, it's sort of like you're asking what's the acceleration towards the upside that we could or maybe won't see? What do we need to get it to get that next oomph up? And for us, it becomes expectations. You know, you've heard me say this before, Tom. Earnings expectations go higher as things get better. And the higher that bar goes, you've really got to do more than the same one trick pony uh, to, to really impress towards the upside. And that gets harder and harder. So for now, look, that economic backdrop of GDP growth looking above 6%, unemployment dropping below 5% this year, these are the things pushing the market higher. But to really get that acceleration upward, we need to see earnings show up. All right, so that earnings show up to, to justify expectations. How about a place where the expectations have already been diminished, like Europe? Are you getting on that train saying that there can only be outperformance in a place where the expectations have been pushed down to such a degree as in the Eurozone? 
Well, I won't say that there's only upside because when you have that uncertainty brewing, you know, it can spiral downwards. Now, so far, it looks like, you know, the path forward is, you know, sunnier and it looks like it's going to get better as vaccine distribution gets a little more familiar. And as always, every day, you know a little more about the situation. But for now, that's why we're keeping our money in the States. That's why we like the U.S. equity play, because we're seeing less uncertainty here domestically and we're more comfortable with the opportunities here. Anahan, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated today with Wells Fargo Securities, our equity strategist here within a great, great uh, bull market. Terry Haynes joins us with Pangea right now. Terry, this is where political rhetoric runs up against blunt reality. I mean, all this talk about infrastructure and fiscal policy runs up against the political emotions of the constituencies. How does Ireland, uh, uh, how does Ireland adjust to a call for a glo- global corporate minimum tax? Oh, how they, how they respond to it, Tom, is uh, uh, giving it the back of their hand or uh, inviting you into the pub for a drink. And meanwhile, uh, very soon you'll be talking about something, anything other than that. Uh, you're quite right that it's the uh, uh, that it's right. corporate policy. Firstly, and secondly, you know, it, it, Yellen's uh, Yellen's not uh, an independent chair of, uh, of the Fed here. She's the Secretary of the Treasury, so a general in the Biden army trying to figure out some way to provide uh, additional money for additional stimulus and infrastructure spending isn't exactly news, but that's not going to get it done. How do we pay for infrastructure if there's a genuine pushback to individual taxes? And shock corporate taxes as well. Well, that's going to. Uh, the short answer is I don't know, but it's going to be uh, it's going to be a negotiation uh, between uh, b- between the Congress, particularly the Senate, uh, and the White House, and uh, they're going to have to get uh, both sides are going to have to get serious. I mean, one thing we're going to have we're going to find out pretty soon is whether the president is serious about wanting to do actual infrastructure improvements or whether this is uh, whether this is mostly for show. Uh, if 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 the president wants to do that, there are a lot of Republicans uh, out there, uh, not just Roy Blunt on the Sunday shows, but Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia and many others saying, look, we have a history here of doing uh, bipartisan and coming up in the last couple of years with bipartisan solutions on infrastructure, uh, water, all kinds of other things. If the president wants to involve in existing Senate discussions already, uh, they can do that. Uh, but in order to do that, they're going to have to stop identifying everything as infrastructure and get down to what you know the the general usage actually is: roads, bridges, water. Well, Terry, based on what you've actually seen so far, which is Joe Biden saying we want bipartisan support, but realistically, we're willing to go it alone. What do you see as the likely price tag, the likely timeline of something that could actually get done at this point? Well, first, I'd caution the markets that it's going to take months and months to do this, Lisa. Uh, I I bogeyed it at a a fourth quarter calendar year 21. I think it takes a long time to do that, just negotiating the politics of the the Democratic Party between centrists who would be happy to go with kind of the meat and potatoes approach and progressives who think this is far too little money. Uh, The Biden people have already uh, essentially made a decision. They're going to let the progressives uh, try to figure that out on their own without uh, involving the White House too much. Uh, But I'd I'd look at it much more as a one and a half trillion to two trillion number. Uh, And uh, I think the White House can probably get something like that, uh, but over 10 years. But it's going to take quite a while. There might 
might be a little bit uh, a little bit of corporate tax in there. Uh, there might be a bunch of other solutions. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, much much smaller point. You'll know if the administration is going to get it serious if they are willing to accept ideas on how to ramp up uh, and and make more effective infrastructure decisions. If this is about uh, fixing Pennsylvania's roads quickly and well, uh, the general public will be uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, will be enthusiastic about that. But if this is simply shoveling more money to the state agency that has given uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvanians, the joke for generations that what's going on here is uh, is putting together more orange cones, which is the joke is that that's the state flower. Um, if you know if that's all this is about, uh, it's not going to be received very enthusiastically at all. So the administration is going to have to make uh, qualitative and quantitative decisions well, about what they want. I assume that they want something. Terry, this is a really important point, the process of getting this done, not just the headline number, not just the goals, but the process of who does it and how they do it to prevent sort of a DMV type situation from emerging. What processes would you like to see the Biden administration implement alongside a plan like this to make sure the efficiency of this use of cash? Well, what they're going to have to uh, what they're going to have to do is uh, is essentially put a lot of strings on it. Uh, they're going to have to incent state governments to prioritize projects. They're going to have to incent them to get it done quickly. And one thing Republicans will want to see is they'll want to see at the very least timelines and, and you know and potentially even some waivers of uh, of environmental restrictions. And I don't mean getting rid of the environmental <coughs> restrictions. I mean just the idea that environmental decisions can't take a decade to, to process. Uh, which you know tends to happen a lot. Uh, if they're willing to streamline a process and make sure that the states are actually doing something rather aggressively to to implement infrastructure of all kinds, whether it be roads, bridges, broadband, whatever, uh, you know, the, the, you'll see some more bipartisan receptivity. Uh, but if not, if this is all, if this is really all about uh, same old, same old, uh, then I think things will fall apart. Terry, thank you so much. Terry Haynes with Pangea with us today. Right now, and this is a really, really important conversation because not just Dana Peterson, but the conference board is where she is employed. The conference board is their chief economist. The conference board has thousands and thousands Thousands of corporations as their clients, and it is a pulse and understanding of what corporate America and corporate globally is doing. Dana Peterson, how are corporations doing and what are their expectations? Well, um, CEOs are actually pretty happy. Our latest reading on CEO confidence is at a 17-year high. And certainly when we talk to many of our members, they are actually quite excited about what's going on. Uh, however, they are very concerned about inflationary pressures. Um, you see that uh, there are issues in terms of supply chain backlogs. Um, certainly uh, energy prices right. are rising. So that's really a concern for our members. What about fighting the last inflation war? I mean, there's anyone we can go back to the war of the 60s, the war of the 70s, or the inflation east is failures over the last 15 years. What's the war look like right now on inflation? 
Well, when you look at the core PCE deflator, it looks like we've killed inflation. I mean, we're not seeing any inflationary pressures on the consumer side uh, overall. However, there are definitely pockets of inflation. Um, our own measure of one-year inflation expectations has been ticking up in line with gasoline prices. But when you look at other measures of longer-term inflation expectations, they still appear to be pretty well anchored. All right, which has to do with wages and this idea that until wages really start to increase, you're not going to see inflation rise in the way that the Federal Reserve would like to see it. We are seeing more of a push from the Biden administration for unionization or for some sort of uh, minimum wage. We know that that vote uh, for the Amazon workers will be coming out in terms of the results this week. Do you think that those efforts will lead to wage inflation beyond what people are currently expecting? Well, certainly, uh, not only at the federal government level, but lots of state and local governments have been raising minimum wages. And certainly, you will see uh, some inflationary pressures for certain industries. For example, uh, hotels and restaurants, nearly 60% of their workers are actually minimum wage workers. And certainly, some states, especially in the South, will see some inflationary pressures. Um, but offsetting that could be the rise in remote work, where many businesses can hire workers that are in uh, lower cost jurisdictions or even from abroad. Um, so you're going to see some uh, push and pull there in terms of those different uh, pressures with respect to inflation. Dana, how long will it take to determine the sea change underway of working from home and the shifts in the locations of some of these jobs? Have we already started to see that in the data? Well, I mean, it's it's a little tough to see, <laughs> certainly. Uh, I mean, we do have surveys where we've asked businesses about uh, remote work, and many businesses are saying, hey, there's going to be a hybrid model going forward where uh, some workers are going to be working remotely permanently, some are going to be in the office, and some are going to be going back and forth between remote work and, and uh, in-person work. And so this is something that is not going to change. We're going to continue to see this, and certainly there are going to be implications in terms of productivity as well as with respect to inflation. Dana, I want to focus. I mean, I've really never done this with you, Dana, but I really think the dynamics and the history of the conference board, going back to the Triangle uh, disaster in New York City in about 1915, 1916, this relationship of unions, CEOs, and a president who's extremely comfortable with the union uh, movement. What is the labor? You know, I, I don't want you to speak for the conference board and 2,000 executives, but what do you see as the dynamic forward within labor unions and these CEOs, or is it just noise? Well, I think the thing is that it depends on what uh, labor unions are looking for. Certainly when it comes to higher wages, we already see many large companies, um, certainly some of our own members that are already raising wages. They're already trying to address the concerns of of their laborers in terms of wages, benefits, uh, making sure that there's training and adequate uh, number of hours. So I think that there's certainly a middle ground that can be reached here. I, well, the middle ground that can be released, that's great, but let's bring it back to your macroeconomics. Do you fold in wage inflation for this year or not? Um, I think there can be some wage inflation. In fact, uh, overall, we think there's going to be consumer price inflation as well. Uh, certainly, as, as as consumers continue to uh, desire certain types of goods, um, and then once people start engaging in in-person services, um, that's going to be inflationary as well. But I think the key thing is how much inflation and for how long. And we think that you know even with wage inflation and and price uh, gasoline price inflation, which is kind of overall, but also.
also inflation for certain types of services uh, rising, that we're probably not going to see runaway inflation a la the 70s, and that the Fed is probably going to remain patient and still allow some measure of inflation before it, it, it starts releasing or, or removing some accommodation. Maybe not the 1970s all over again. <laughs> However, we are seeing prices increase, particularly when we talk about the hard goods and we talk about supply chains that have gotten disrupted. And Tom's been asking all morning, and rightly so, what are companies going to do with all of this cash that they're bringing in? How much is going to go to fortifying their supply chains and preventing some of these disruptions from happening again? Are you seeing those types of investments? Well, indeed, our own survey of C-suite uh, members, especially CEOs, indicates that uh, for the longer term, uh, not just now, there is going to be a focus on making sure there's resilience in supply chain. So there is going to be investment to make sure that there's diversification um, uh, and also that you don't have these disruptions in supply chains that we've seen over the last year. But indeed, some of it is just kind of unavoidable. Even before the pandemic, we had a shortage in uh, container ships, I'm sorry, uh, the containers that you actually put on ships. And so the pandemic just kind of exacerbated these things. We've also had a number of disasters and fires and all sorts of things that are piling onto the strong demand for goods. But I would imagine that certainly as, as consumers around the world are getting vaccinated and businesses are reopening and governments are allowing mobility, that the strong demand for goods is probably going to ebb and that we're going to shift towards uh, consumption of services, many of which are domestically produced. All right. So then in services, do you expect service side inflation to pick up by the end of the year? Or are we so far behind that because of the lag time, because of all the people that have to be brought back into the market and the slack currently in the labor world? Well, our thoughts are that, yes, we are going to see services, in-person services prices rise towards the end of the year. When we look at the U.S., actually, we're actually quite fortunate to have our own vaccines that we're producing and access to those vaccines. And it's broadening across many states. And indeed, many businesses are starting to reopen. Governments are lifting restrictions. I mean, we saw that in the labor market data on Friday, where uh, you saw our leisure and hospitality, especially food and services businesses, reopening. Restaurants are opening up. Bars are opening up. And so if we continue at this pace, then hopefully by the middle of this year, most people will have access to a vaccine. Many people will have taken it. And many of the restrictions that are keeping the economy uh, under wraps mm -hmm. will be lifted. And we'll see further gains in employment. Dana, thank you so much. Dana Peterson with us with the conference board. Just hugely valuable there in some of the dynamics of the American labor economy. Robert Murphy of Northwestern, but truly expert in the history and the dynamics of infectious diseases. And Dr. Murphy joins us uh, this morning. Both you and I, Dr. Murphy, were focused on Michigan. And I want you to go over this strange V word, virulence, and what we know about the waves coming. Virulence is not discussed. Lead with that right now. Yeah, virulence is just how how nasty it is, how how effective it is in actually killing the host that it's in, infecting, and uh, this is increased with this variant and also the P1 variant in Brazil. Uh, that variant actually somehow got in, up in Whistler, Canada, in British Columbia, on the the ski resort there, and they had to shut it down uh, because of that. Uh, very difficult to deal with, as you right. can see what's going on in Brazil right now, which is a catastrophe. How does the dynamic virulence, whether it's India, Michigan, or Brazil, fold into the wave analysis that's happening worldwide? Yeah, well, it's probably 
the reason why we're having this wave it's probably it's one of the main reasons why we're having the wave and that when we've had these uh, troughs where the case numbers have gone down they have always plateaued and there's always been plenty of virus replicating uh, before we have the next peak we've never been able to get in Europe or the North America the cases really down to rock bottom like they do in Asia uh, and also in Australia and New Zealand, where they get the numbers down into like the dozens. Are we going we to do that? Well, are we going to see the U.S. get there pretty soon, given how quickly we're ramping up vaccinations in the United States? Or do you see that as becoming further and further away because of the predominance of the B117 strain of some of these variants that are more contagious and more virulent? Yeah, no, it's it, you, you hit the, 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 the nail on the head there. The 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 race right now is to get these vaccines out so that we stop uh, we uh, stop the transmission or at least reduce the transmission significantly so that the whole numbers start to go down. Uh, the mRNA vaccines, the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer work fairly well against the B117, the other ones uh, less so. Uh, but they all work a little bit. And all the companies now are working on a booster shot uh, that will actually impact the variants better. So, you know, you're going to see this uh, go on in the next few months uh, as the, uh, the variants take over. You're going to have a new booster shot uh, that's uh, going to uh, protect you from uh, these variants. Dr. Murphy, there's a real challenge here for health professionals and politicians, because on one hand, if we all just stayed home and stayed away from other people for a couple of weeks, everybody in the whole world, it could potentially bring down the cases dramatically. On the other hand, people are lonely. People are depressed. Children need to get educated. This has been going on for more than a year and people are sick of it. How do you pair the reality of the need for more caution with the optimism, which is also just as needed for people who are really battered after more than a year? Year of this social isolation? Well, how can they do it in Australia, New Zealand, and in many other Asian countries, and how come we can't do it? Uh, you know, that's the question that I ask myself. How hard is it to wear a mask every day? How hard is it to stay three to six feet away uh, from other people? How hard is it to limit medium and large sized groups, but keep, keep meeting with smaller groups? It's just not that hard. Uh, but it does take a group effort uh, and everybody's got to be on the same page and the enemy is the virus. The enemy is not other people or I don't believe in this or the state does that. It, it, we got to get all on the same page together and the vaccines will help. And that's going to really uh, take us. Uh, it's going to be the driver here, especially in the United States. Dr. Murphy, how do you respond then to the Texas Rangers really pushing to get 40,000 people in the stands? They're not there yet, full disclosure, but they're trying. Or even yesterday with the Pirates-Cubs, 10,343 at Wrigley Field. I mean, do you support everybody's effort to try to get back within the good news in America or not? Well, you know, I mean, we all want to go to the Cubs game, all right? Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, 10,000 is, is a fraction of what that stadium holds. Uh, and, you know, if people are wearing masks, they supposedly were wearing masks, and uh, they're spread out uh, through the stadium, and it's outside, uh, you know, some of these situations, uh, you know, are tenable. We can do them. If this peak continues, that's all going to end. 
Well, they're already talking about banning indoor dining again here in the Chicago area. And, you know, all the venues will shut down again if, if we don't get a hold of this thing. So, Dr. Murphy, I just want to address one thing you were saying. You're saying it's not that hard to all wear masks, perhaps. It's not that hard to remain three to six feet away from one another. That gets more difficult for people who have to get back to work and have children at home and need to figure out what child care situations they're going to have or if they need to uh, have a job where they need to engage with somebody else. How, what's OK and what's not OK in the list of things that are getting reopened right now? Well, it, it, it's the same thing, though. It's wearing the mask and socially distancing and taking the vaccine. We've got to get these vaccines out there because that is going to that'll slow the whole thing down. You know, they're not 100 percent, but it's going to be, you know, 90 percent better. You know, so, you know, that's a huge number. Uh, and, you know, that that's all we have to do. We don't have to do much more than that. Uh, and I don't think it's really too much to ask, but we all got to be on the same page. Robert Murphy, thank you so much. Dr. Murphy with Northwestern University in Infectious Diseases. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.